0: Hello and welcome to this new edition of Café Klingendal, the podcast series of the Klingendal Institute. My name is Brigitte Degger, researcher at Klingendal, and I am joined today here by Natalie Tocci, director of the Italian Institute for International Affairs and special advisor to Federica Mogherini, the High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy of the European Union. In that capacity, Ms. Tocci has been a driving force behind the EU Global Strategy in 2016 and is currently working on its implementation. First of all, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. You're here in The Hague today on the occasion of the Klingendal State of the Union Conference 2019, themed Reuniting Europe Between Geopolitical Tensions and Domestic Constraints, a very relevant topic considering the current developments in international relations. And as I said, you have been the driving force of the EU Global Strategy. And this was published just five days after the British people voted to leave the European Union. Uh, And beyond Brexit, the EU has tried to come to grips with the challenge of continuing migration, internal challenges of the rule of law, and an unstable neighbourhood. And aside from these crises, there are also now questions about what used to be key certainties. For instance, the relationship with the US. And in this context, do you think the EU global strategy
1: already deserves an update? No, I actually don't think it does, and uh, it's not just Natalie that doesn't think it does, but uh, actually this very question uh, we've started to pose to the member states in December of last year, and we had a first round of discussions with member states, and in fact all 28, obviously this includes uh, the United Kingdom uh, that is within the Union still, they all believe that the global strategy remains pertinent to this day. But I think the interesting question is to ask, why is is that the case? Now, a very um, sort of anecdotal reply to the question uh, has to do with a piece of advice that the HRVP, Federica Mogherini, gave me when I was working on the strategy. And uh, she said this to me, I think it was about March uh, 2016, so when we were beginning to write the strategy. And she said, um, a bit as a joke, but actually not really as a joke, she said, reread every sentence that you write and ask yourself whether it would still be pertinent if the British people were to vote to leave the European Union and if Donald Trump were elected President of the United States. Uh, And as I said, she kind of said it half-jokingly, but half-seriously. I actually took that piece of advice very, very seriously indeed. And I think sort of in retrospect, if we were to sort of think back at what the five main priorities of the global strategy are, one could argue that three of them, the resilience of states and societies in the surrounding region, the integrated approach to conflicts and crises and cooperative regional orders, Those three sets of priorities and obviously related challenges have not fundamentally changed in nature. They have certainly changed in scale and intensity at times, uh, but we're still confronted with mess to the south, mess to the east, and a mess that cannot be solved with a magic wand, basically. Uh, More interesting is the story about uh, the security of the union and multilateralism, so the first and the last priority. And in many respects, I think that largely because of what has actually happened in terms of implementation on security and defense, uh, but also ignited by precisely developments such as the election of Donald Trump uh, or the Brexit vote, Uh, the whole debate over the security of the union was back in 2016, in retrospect, still a very timid debate. We now talk about strategic autonomy, which in the global strategy is defined as having an appropriate level of autonomy. So we're still kind of tinkering around the edges, but obviously the direction of travel was was the same. Um, On global governance and multilateralism, obviously there are things that have fundamentally changed uh, and uh, it kind of has a name and a surname and that's Donald Trump. Uh, And in many respects, I think this has hit us with the reality that in order to foster multilateralism and to ensure its transformation as uh, promised and as advocated by the global strategy, we kind of have to be more creative and innovative than we were even two years ago. You know, there is not a fixed group of quote unquote like minded countries that uh, we will always be able to partner with on all dossiers. We will have to be more pragmatic in picking and choosing, uh, but doing so living up to our own principles. So in many respects, the overall philosophy of the global strategy of principle pragmatism remains very relevant to this day.
0: And in the light of the upcoming uh, European Parliament elections, many people expect the fragmentation of the EU political landscape to continue. Uh, The central question of today's conference is whether the EU is strong enough internally to deal with the external challenges. What is your view on that?
1: Well, that is the million dollar question, Uh, and that is precisely why I believe and very strongly believe that either we do stand united uh, or we will not be able to confront those external challenges and, in fact, internal challenges uh, too. And the question really is, what can we do to ensure that unity? It's a difficult argument to make. I mean, you know, what we were also discussing over the course of uh, of this conference is precisely the fact that the kind of narratives and rationales for European integration in the past, you know, peace on the continent after the end of the World War, or, you know, the opportunities provided by the single market, that doesn't really hit many chords with European citizens today. So we need to find a new story. We need to find a new rationale. And the difficulty is that that rationale in many respects has to do with necessity. So, you know, uh, Italians and Dutch and French and what have you um, perhaps don't particularly like each other, but they need each other. Now, the point is, and I'm not a politician, so I don't know how to do this, uh, but the the quest, I think, for Europeanist politicians is how to translate that rationale of necessity into a sexy political rationale. I mean, kind of saying you've got to do it because you've got no choice (laughs) isn't particularly attractive, but that is basically what the truth is.
0: And uh, do you think that an effective external policy of the European Union can play a role in that, uh, to see that it is necessary to stick together?
1: I mean, especially if we construe foreign policy not only in the traditional sense of diplomacy and and defence or on development, but we put within that box every external dimension of every policy, I actually think it is the most promising avenue of European integration, precisely because the opportunities, the challenges, the threats, however you want to put it, that all European citizens are confronted with are as much internal as they are external, and in fact you cannot create or draw a very clear boundary between the two, you can only hope to do it through an effective external policy at European level.
0: Uh, Yeah, and it's always easy to talk about the challenges of the European Union, of course. But let's focus on the foreign policy successes. What do you think have been the main successes since the EU Global Strategy was published?
1: Well, certainly, I think that um, security and defense has been the most uh, successful area looked at from the outside. Uh, The fact that there is a European defence fund and that we have launched a permanent structured cooperation and that we have established a military planning and conduct capability does not strike as particularly ambitious or meaningful. But for anyone that knows the history of European integration and particularly the very troubled history of integration in foreign policy and particularly security and defence, These developments are actually historic in scale. Now, how meaningful and ambitious they will be, we will only be able to tell with time. But that that this has been a very important step being taken over the last couple of years, I think, is uh, incontrovertible. So there, I think, is the main area of of success. I think the fact that despite having Donald Trump on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, and despite the fact that Donald Trump has... Uh, attacked multilateralism in all its shapes and forms, beginning with minilateral sort of agreements like the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action on uh, the Iran uh, nuclear deal, uh, through to more macro forms of multilateralism like uh, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, um, you know, passing through you know, different institutions and different agreements. Trade, obviously, being another clear point. I mean, the fact that on all these issues, the European Union has actually managed to not only hold its position, but also at times to achieve certain successes, like in the case uh, of trade, for example. I mean, the fact that, you know, over the last years, uh, despite this sort of stepping away from uh, free trade, This has been a commission that has actually secured uh, trade deals with uh, Canada and and Japan and is uh, now opening and finalizing agreements with a set of different (coughs) regional organizations and and countries. That is is success, as I said. One always has to look at this in relative terms. So it's success precisely because the rest of the world, in many respects, is moving in the opposite direction. So you believe that
0: when Donald Trump came to power, it also opened up new opportunities for the European Union to explore other partners in this respect?
1: I think uh, certainly yes, it has uh, presented an opportunity, Uh, I think in different ways. First and perhaps even more important is in a very internal sense. I mean, the fact that all of a sudden, it dawned on us, uh, that maybe the United States would not always and automatically come to the rescue, uh, if we're in trouble has precisely been the spark, the sort of kick in the backside uh, that we needed to start waking up on security and defense. It's a very long journey and we're only at the beginning, but in many respects, we have to be quote unquote thankful, uh, to the excesses of Donald Trump to begin, to begin this journey. And then I think you're absolutely right. It has all also uh, forced us to be a bit more open and imaginative when it comes to uh, our partnerships, I would say. I think in many respects, we are moving away from a world of nouns <laughs> into a world of verbs. And what I mean by this is that uh, rather than saying X, Y, or Z are our partners and they are our partners on each and every question, it is really a question of partnering, uh, and it, we will have to be flexible in doing that. What remains firm is what our interests are, what our values are. But in some respects, you know, or on some particular issues, if we take the case of the JCPOA, for example, well, obviously, we're uh, on a much closer position to Russia than we are with the United States, which, of course, is not the case if we're talking about Ukraine. Uh, and, and, and it's precisely this you know, sort of juggling between different dossiers and looking at on, you know, on different questions, what is the configuration of partners that we can partner with and appreciating that it will change from time to time and from place to place. So
0: the European Union has become more flexible in the last few years. One last question to, to end this podcast with. What do you see as the key steps to improve Europe's
1: foreign policy credibility? I think, without a shadow of a doubt, is um, who we are internally and how we are seen internally. Um, the power of the European Union has always been uh, a power of attraction, a power of the European way of life, uh, a power about our values uh, uh, and, and sort of, you know, related issues. The way in which, for instance, we're handling the migration phenomenon, uh, and in particular the question of refugees, um, has really dented enormously our credibility in the world. Uh, We simply don't have a leg to stand on to talk about rights and norms and democracy and freedom and uh, all good things when we do what we do uh, internally, when we leave uh, a boat of 50 people stranded in the Mediterranean because we can't figure out uh, where tens of peoples uh, could end up going in a union of 500 million that were simply looked at by the rest of the world as being completely pathetic, uh, frankly speaking. So I think we can only hope to be credible in the world if we actually live up to our values internally.
0: Well, that seems like a good end note. Again, thank you for joining us today and enlightening us on this important topic, which we will closely follow in the future at Klingendael. If you want to stay up to date on Café Klingendael, please register for our newsletter at www.klingendael.org.